pleasure to be back with you this morning. I, um, I always love coming out here. I know that there is always going to be a lot of scripture, and it is always um, encouraging to my heart. Hurry up and wait. We've all heard that phrase. We've probably all said it. And usually it has something to do with, you know, you got to get in line to get that special ticket that you want. Or maybe it's when you have to go to the DMV. Or you just ordered that special car or sofa or something. And it's hurry up and wait. In all of those situations, we kind of understand it's part of the deal, right? It's just, that's kind of the cost of doing business, as they say. But what happens when it's not getting a couch or waiting in line for tickets to that concert? What happens when it's our lives or the life of someone we love? Hurry up and wait. Today, that's where we find Joseph. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Joseph's life unfold before our eyes. The 17-year-old kid the favored child who didn't have the sense to be careful about the way that he talked about his calling, the plot of his brothers and being sold into slavery, and from slave to household manager in the house of this important Egyptian official, and then accused of rape or at least assault and sent to prison, and only to rise in status in prison to the point that he's running things inside and then he's interpreting dreams again and here we find Joseph in Genesis chapter 40 verse 23 after all of this has happened and we read one single verse the chief cupbearer however did not remember Joseph he forgot him there's a positive verse for you and so today we're going to look at four aspects of hurry up and wait stages of life. And we're going to do it through the life of Joseph. When I first heard, okay, you've got one verse to talk about this, I thought, man, how's that going to work? Um, but there's a surprising amount of things here. You see, through the story of Joseph, we're going to see both what we can and should do in and through these hurry-up-and-wait moments of life. If our faith matters, if it's real at all, then I think one of the things that we need to do when we look at stories like Joseph's is see what other believers have done and follow their examples when it's appropriate. So how do we learn from Joseph's life in this hurry-up-and-wait moment? How do we learn from him and how do you take solace from the voice that the cupbearer forgot him? Well, I think it starts by looking at the pattern of Joseph's life. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your work in our lives. I thank you for the example of Joseph and for the ways that you allow us to hurry up and wait. And I hope that today we will see just a little bit more on how we are to react in these situations. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> it seems to me there's a single word that sort of defines Joseph's 
life. And that word is action. I can almost hear the director saying it, can't you? You know, a couple months ago, I did this writing retreat for a couple of days at a Catholic seminary in Mundelein. It was a beautiful campus. And at the day that I got there, Amazon Prime was filming one of their new TV shows. I had no idea this was going on. And I stumbled on the spot where they were doing this, was kind of going down a hill with all of these um, nice staircases. And there's a, a path, a paved path along this man-made lake and the scene was a character running along the path and another guy comes up to him and there was one line I don't remember what the line was but it was just one line and it was really kind of interesting to watch really I was hearing it because I was up away on the hill on these staircases and there was trees around so you couldn't see a whole lot but the scene they were filming might have been 15 or 20 seconds long and they did it for about six takes. It's about 5, 5.15 in the afternoon. If you want to talk about hurry up and wait, this was it. 20 seconds, maybe 10 or 15 in between takes as they apparently watched what they had done and went back and did it again. You see, hurry up and wait. But there was action happening the, the whole time. And in Joseph's life, we see this. First, we see that Joseph was faithful. I want you to think about this. No matter what situation Joseph was in, throughout his life, up to and including where we find him now, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, Joseph was faithful. When he was given a dream as a kid, as a teenager, he didn't shrink from it. He embraced it. In his youthful exuberance, he may not have handled it in the most discreet or diplomatic way, but we can't say that he wasn't faithful. His father sends him to find his brothers, and he's faithful. He tracks them down even when they aren't where they're supposed to be, and what does he do? He doesn't shirk. He doesn't decide it's not worth doing, even though it's difficult, even though he had an excuse. He's sold into slavery and he becomes part of a household of the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Not only a household slave, he does his job so well, he basically becomes the household manager. He could have kept his head down, could have become bitter, done the minimum, but he didn't. Joseph was faithful. Even when he's wrongly sent to prison, Joseph is faithful. And here is where that word really starts to make sense, I think. Because as we saw last week, Joseph is in prison, verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, and he goes back to where he started, with dreams. If I were Joseph, I wouldn't have wanted to get involved at all at this point. Look where dreams got me the first time. I was faithful, and everyone I ever cared about, my family not only turned their backs on me, they hurt me. They sold me. They effectively cut me off from life. And now, here I am in prison, wrongly convicted, and I'm going to interpret dreams again? No thanks. I know where this goes. I could end up someplace worse, if that's even possible. But Joseph didn't go down that path. 
Joseph was faithful. God called him to be a dreamer. It was who he was. And he was faithful to that calling. Are we faithful when life doesn't make sense? When it doesn't seem to have an upside to being faithful? When it doesn't seem to matter or when no one notices? Do we live out our faith no matter what? This election season has led a lot of Christians, some that I have a lot of respect for or have had a lot of respect for, to defend or attack in ways that are decidedly not Christian. Are we faithful in the stances that we take and in the way that we take those stances? Or are we bitter and cynical? You see, being faithful means doing right even when, especially when, we know that the person on the other side isn't. When we know that they will do anything to stop us, to put us down. That's what Joseph did. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, told us as much. Matthew 5, 38 to 48, we read an interesting passage. You have heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Like it if a politician or two would take those verses to heart. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, faithfulness... The kind of faithfulness Joseph exhibited looks like Jesus, not like our natural reactions. But Joseph was more than faithful. Joseph was active. You see, our temptation is, is sometimes not to be unfaithful, but to be passive. Fine, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to believe the right things. I won't even get bitter. I will accept my life as it is, my struggles, my waiting, but I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to do anything. That's up to you. It seems right. It might even seem pious, and I don't mean in the condescending way. I mean in the good way. Let go and let God, we say. There's something to that on one level, but Joseph doesn't live that way. Sometimes we tell ourselves that God is sovereign so we don't have to do anything because it's all up to him. But that's not the pattern we see here. You see, Joseph at every point in his life, high or low, good or bad, was active. 
He didn't wait for God to do. He didn't wait for the situation to be perfect or the risks to be minimal. He didn't wait for a more perfect sign like Gideon did. Joseph did. You see, sometimes we have to hurry up and wait, but that doesn't mean we have to be passive. Joseph did for his God, for his father, for his master, for the prison guards, and even for his fellow prisoners. Joseph did. And that's an important lesson for us. It's an important lesson for me. You see, faithfulness is more than God language. It's more than knowing the right answers or having the right attitude. True faithfulness is active. It does. Joseph did. And more than just doing, Joseph did what he could. You see, sometimes we get downhearted because... What we're doing doesn't seem like much. We ask ourselves if what we're doing really matters. Does what we can do matter? I mean, think about Joseph. He's in prison. He's running the inside of a prison, more or less. It's kind of a fall from grace. Does that matter? I am both naturally a worrier and a perfectionist. I want to do things right, and I'm often afraid that I'm not up to the task. I see the possibilities in situations what could be, but I'm not quite so sure that I have what it takes to get there. So I have a tendency not to do even what I can, because I can't do what I really want, or I don't think I can. And that's a really bad way to go about life. Because it's, it's a very pragmatic, results-oriented view of the world and, frankly, of our faith. And it's wrong because God never told Joseph, hey, here's the dream, fulfill it tomorrow. He never said to Joseph, don't ever put your situ yourself in a situation where someone can misread you or do you wrong. He never said, don't attempt something that is so overwhelming that there's no way you can see that it could happen. You see, time after time, Joseph does what he can. He goes to find his brothers. They aren't there. So what does he do? He listens to the guy who had seen them and takes the next step. He's kidnapped and sent to Egypt, and he's faithful. He does what he can. Even in prison, shackled and without freedom, he does what he can. See, here's what we need to know about the way that these Bible stories work. They, they don't give us a blow-by-blow -blow account, right? They're not intended to be. They tell us the highlights. They move the story along. We don't know how long that Joseph was in Potiphar's house. How long did it take to go from a simple slave to a household manager? We don't know how long Joseph was in prison before he interpreted the dreams. But we can sure, be sure that none of this stuff happened overnight. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, there's three servants. Each is given a different amount. And nowhere in this story is there a judgment on the amount of talent that the individual servant received. 
we don't see any indication that the playing field was either level or supposed to be. The servant with one talent was condemned not because he had a little, but because he didn't do anything with the little he had. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable of some watchful servants. So they're waiting for their master to come home after a wedding banquet. It's late at night, and Jesus says that the servants should be ready. And Peter asks, okay, so who's this parable for? And he gives an interesting answer to this. Basically, Jesus says that the parable is for everybody. He says that some are going to know what the master wants. Some aren't going to know what the master wants. Jesus says that the one who knows what the master wants and does something wrong is going to be destroyed. Okay? But he also says that the one that doesn't know that something is wrong, or he does something wrong or that should be punished, but doesn't know what the master wants, will be punished only a little. And then he follows it up with saying that if you have been given much, much will be required of you. If you've been little, given little, a little will be required of you. You see, it's not about how much we have. It's not about what we know. It's about what we do with what we're given. If you've been given much, you better use it. And if you've been given a little, you still have to use it. The issue is not what is possible out there, but what we can do and do it. God doesn't demand or even ask for all of us to be the same. Our job is to be actively faithful with what we can do. Let God be God and you be you. He can handle his job and you can't and neither can I. And frankly, I can't do your job and you probably can't do mine. So it's probably best if we attend to the jobs that we have been given. And I think this also means that we have to watch our attitude. Because sometimes we want that job up there and we get cynical about it and jaded. And that we're always trying to find a way to do the job we want instead of the one we have. To do the job of our boss or whoever it is that we think we can do a better job than. But we're supposed to be faithful in the things that we can do and the things that are in front of us. You see, Joseph's active faithfulness was to do what he could in the situation that he was in. That doesn't mean ambition is bad. But we have to be faithful with what's in front of us before we can get to the next step. But as much as Joseph's life was exemplified by action, I can kind of hear the objection in the back of my mind. Do you not remember that verse you just read? Joseph in Genesis 40, 23. Uh, Joseph was abandoned, right? He's not rewarded. And you may be thinking, that's where I live. You don't know my situation. You don't know the hurt I'm facing. And the truth of the matter is, I don't. But thankfully, it's not about what I know or don't know. 
It's about God, what he knows, what he's up to. Look at Joseph's life again. In prison, first, he's forgotten by the one he helped. As a matter of fact, he's in prison again, if you think about it. Because his trip to Egypt wasn't exactly a pleasure cruise or a wilderness adventure excursion. It was captivity. And now he's been faithful again. He's built his reputation again, and he's brought low. He's built his reputation again in the prison and has some measure of authority. He's not shirked his responsibility. He's not stepped back from the, dream, the new dreams. He's fulfilled his calling. He has helped the cupbearer and has been forgotten. And in Genesis 41, verse 1, which we'll see next week, we're told that it wasn't just overnight. It was for two years. And here's a truth we need to face. We are not to be faithful because of how others are going to react. We are not to be faithful because of what it's going to get for us. We are to be faithful because it's right. Because we're doing what God requires of us. Because it is who we are. Paul tells us in Romans 8.29 that we are to be conformed to the image of the Son. And he reiterates to the Galatian believers in Galatians 4.19 and he says that his work won't be complete until the image of Christ is formed in them. Over and over again in Scripture, we are taught that being righteous and being faithful is not about what we get. It's not about whether it's reciprocated. It's about God. It is fundamentally about having the right relationship with God. People are going to do you wrong. You're going to be forgotten. Perhaps by friends, perhaps by ones whom you love. You would have thought that the cupbearer would have at least, you know, told the story. I knew this was going to happen. There was this weird Hebrew guy in the prison. And he interpreted my dream. He said I was going to be released. He knew it. It was amazing. But he didn't do that. People are going to let you down. You can take it to the bank. Mark let Paul down. So did Barnabas. Peter, well, all of the disciples let Jesus down. If anyone had the right to hold a grudge, it was Jesus. But he didn't. He restored them all. All except the one disciple who wouldn't let himself be restored because he killed himself. Joseph was more than forgotten, though. He was left to rot. Two years. Shackled. Dave talked last week about prison. And it's not a nice place, even today. But think about it in Egypt at the time of Joseph. Desert heat, no electricity, no running water, no overhead lights or flush toilets, and I'm going to assume rats and other nasty things. Sometimes we face overwhelming obstacles and we're forgotten. 
and it feels that we are simply left to rot. There's no point going on. There's no sense in denying the realities we face or in sugarcoating them and acting as if everything is okay. Joseph didn't have a choice with where he was at. But all too often, we do. We are the body of Christ. And when we greet one another, we politely ask how the other person is doing. And sort of polite dictate is, you say fine. Maybe you say busy, because busy might be stressful, but it's relatable. We can nod our heads and and we can commiserate, but it doesn't cost us anything, really. But if someone breaks the protocol, right, the, the sort of unstated niceties, we don't know what to do. You get deer in the headlights time, right? Frozen. And the problem with deer in headlights is the deer stopped, but the car didn't, and something's going to splat. We know it. Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens, and that means both helping and when we feel left to rot, asking for help. People can't help if they don't know. Joseph wasn't in a situation where he could get help. But we probably are. But beyond all this, there's no guarantee of how long or short our time of waiting is going to be. Joseph had two years. We know Joseph had two years, but he didn't. He didn't know at all. He didn't know the time. Paul's thorn in the flesh was never taken away. Never. We are all going to face a period of waiting in our lives. We can't predict how long it's going to last or how severe it's going to be, but it's coming if it's not there already. And we still have to be faithful. But it gets worse. Because there's something missing from this story. Dave pointed out last week that several times we are told that the Lord was with Joseph. Not today. We don't hear that. We hear it at earlier points, but at the risk of reading too much into this passage, I think it's it's safe to say that Joseph at least was tempted to feel shut off from God. At this point in the story, there is no indication that God is actively moving, is talking to Joseph, is letting him know what's going on. He is cut off from everyone and everything left to rot, and there is no indication that there is a word from God. Why do I say that? Because the author several other times goes out of his way to point out that God was with Joseph. I think Joseph felt completely shut off from God at this time. Sometimes our period of waiting can last for years. A few years ago, some journals of Mother Teresa came to light. I have problems with lots of Mother Teresa's theology, but there's two things I have never questioned in all of my life about her. One, her love of Jesus, and two, her faithfulness. And these journals were something of a scandal to the secular world. They showed a woman who felt cut off from God for decades. God was silent. 
And the temptation was to say, see, this faith thing can't be real. Even Mother Teresa felt disconnected. She didn't hear from God. I mean, if she didn't, come on. And that response totally missed the point. Because everyone faces these times of waiting, even extended times. The point is not that Mother Teresa lost her faith. The point is that she didn't, even in her hurt. She didn't stop doing what she could. She didn't abandon the calling she had. She did. She remained faithful even in those dry times. She bore witness to a broken world of the power of the cross, even when it didn't feel that way. And sometimes we are going to feel cut off from God. He's going to feel silent. Job felt that way. Even Jesus felt that way in the garden before he was taken away to be crucified. You want your mind to be blown, ponder that for a bit. Jesus' own reaction at that point. But you see, our feelings and our thoughts and our fears and doubts are not the standard. God is our standard. He is righteous and trustworthy. He is just and compassionate. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we really believe God is like? Do we really trust him? Isaiah, in chapter 29 and 30, writes an oracle of woe to Jerusalem and the people of Israel. In 30, 15, he says that God requires repentance, but the people just want to flee. He says, go ahead and flee. Get on your fastest horses. It's not going to help. You're going to be pursued just as fast. And then verse 18 of chapter 30. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up and show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. You know, sometimes we try to claim verses in the Old Testament that are meant for Israel a bit too quickly. But not in this case. This is a verse about God's character. He is gracious and compassionate and just. Blessed are those who wait for him. And sometimes we're going to feel cut off from God, but faithfulness means waiting on Him. All right, turning point from all of this dark stuff. Answers are going to come. You see, we can be in the midst of waiting, in the midst of what some would call the dark night of the soul, and we can temp be tempted to believe that there's never going to be an end. But it's often in these moments that we can be drawn closer to God than ever before if we are willing. And we need to remember three things about answers. First, not yet doesn't mean never. It's tempting for me to say that sooner or later you're going to get your answer. The problem is sometimes we don't get answers, at least not the clear, you know, instructional, rational kind that we crave. But not yet doesn't mean never. Sometimes the answers we seek 
come in the circumstances and the people that we encounter. Sometimes we can only see the answer after long reflection and from a long distance in time and space. And sometimes the answers that we seek require the wisdom of others around us speaking into our lives. Joseph spent two years, well, two more years in prison. And the narrator, Moses, makes a point of telling us this when he doesn't give us the time frame for how long he's been in Egypt, how long he had been in prison before. So why would he do that? I think it's to show us that the answers that we seek are not always on our timetable, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. You see, I think Moses is telling us that God's plan sometimes continues to unfold even when we don't see it. In the here and now, the answer, the end of our waiting is not obvious, may not even be close, but that doesn't mean that it's not coming. You see, the cupbearer forgot, but he didn't forget forever. The time will come and things will change. And we've got to remember that not yet doesn't mean never, even if we don't ever understand it completely. The answers are so much bigger than us. Answers that are more than we could comprehend even if we tried. The question for us is not the answers, but the one who is doing the answering. Can we trust God to be God? Can we trust him to do the right thing even if we don't understand it? Even when everything looks dark. And I would say that culturally, our moment, as the sun comes out of the clouds, looks dark right now. I listened to a talk by Dr. Russell Moore this past week. He's the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention. And it was interesting because he was talking about Christians and politics and the religious right. But one of the things he said a few weeks ago struck me. He said that we face a choice right now between a tornado and a hurricane. Both are going to do damage, catastrophic damage. Damage is different, but damage nonetheless. And it's tempting in these moments to throw up our hands and say, forget it all. Hunker down, give up on the world around us. But God is still on the throne. We sang this morning, I wrote it down, God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. And that leads us to the second part, which is the answers we get are rarely the answers we expect. Joseph was looking for a way out of prison. Perhaps he was still looking for a way for that, seven, that dream that 17-year-old kid had to be fulfilled. Perhaps he had abandoned hope of that altogether. We don't know. But as we are going to see next week, Pharaoh's going to have a problem. A problem Joseph can solve. I don't think Joseph ever expected to be face-to-face -face with Pharaoh interpreting his dreams. I don't think that waiting those two years for the exact moment that his specific talent was needed was what he expected. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm certain that that was not the case. You see, we like our answers to be straightforward. Clear, linear, rational, complete. It's what we like. It's what we've been trained for. But life doesn't work that way. Think about the waiting times you have experienced in life. The difficult ones. The ones where you've come out on the other side. How often have we heard testimonies, people saying, such and such was a terrible experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Why do we say things like that? Because those things shape us. They make us who we are. They draw us, if we allow them to, closer to Christ. And the unexpected answers that we get, the ones that we can only see after the fact, remind us that God can redeem anything. And this is so important. See, God is in the redemption business. Always. He takes the world and the circumstances that we mess up and he binds them and bends them and turns them to his will. Sometimes we wonder why God allows things or if he's actually in control at all. God, why don't you fix it? In all the while, God is doing the harder thing. Not simply dictating but bending even the bad and the horrible to his will. It is almost as if he has challenged the universe to come up with something that he can't handle. I'm God and you're not. I will bend your very defiance to my will and you will see that I alone am God. You see, it's precisely because Joseph was in prison that he comes to Pharaoh's attention. It is precisely because he was falsely accused that he's in prison in the first place. It is precisely because he was sold into slavery that he was in the situation. And ultimately, it is because of all of these things, these evil things, that God uses him to save his people. God is in the redemption business. Yours, mine, Joseph's, the world's. You see, what we need to understand when we look at the stories in Scripture, and sometimes we have a hard time understanding what are these Old Testament stories for as Christians. These individual stories are a small part of a bigger story. Our stories matter, and our stories are part of God's story. We are part of God's story, and He is always redeeming the world. That is who he is. Finally and briefly, I believe that Joseph's story is a pointer to the kingdom. You see, there is an already and not yet aspect going on here. Joseph's weight is a picture of the kingdom of God. Theologians speak of the already not yet nature of the kingdom. It is here and it's not here. It is here and it's to come. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus' preaching centered around this idea. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus began to preach and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see it in Matthew 3, verse 2, and 4, verse 17, and 10, 7, and Mark 1, 15, and Luke 10, 9. It is here now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Joseph's calling was real. His faithfulness to it and to God's plan was real. And God had not abandoned him or the plan even though it looked that way. It was ongoing in the here and now. And so is the kingdom of God, here, now, already. But the kingdom of God is also to come. For Joseph, the fulfillment of his calling hadn't been completed. There was more to do. Waiting was a step on the road. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away. He prepared them for it. He told them that there was more work to do and that in the meantime, they would struggle. They would be hated and persecuted for his sake. But that wasn't the end. He would return. The book of Revelation ends with language very reminiscent of that parable of the waiting servants. In chapter 16, verse 15, we read, Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. And in chapter 22, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 22, we read the words, Behold, I am coming soon. Why? Because there is completion to be had. The kingdom is already and not yet. We have something to look forward to. And for Joseph, Pharaoh's going to call and he's going to be catapulted to the center of power in one of the most powerful kingdoms in the ancient world. For the believer, we are going to be brought into direct fellowship with the creator of the universe. We, the children of the Father, will take our place beside the elder brother who is Christ, the anointed one. And we have to remember that a kingdom has a king. You see, that is Jesus' position. Joseph was called by the king to serve him and by doing so to serve those around him. And so are we. The kingdom has a king and we serve a king, not ourselves. And waiting on the king means blessing for us and blessing for others even when we can't see it. Joseph didn't see it, not then. So what does that mean for us as we close? When there's a kingdom and when there's a king, we need to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You see, Joseph's life, his attitude, his active faithfulness in the things that he could do are pointers to us. Live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, not a slave in this kingdom. And so I want to leave you with some encouraging words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 18. And with this, I'll close and the worship team can come up. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
For we who are alive and always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work at us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who, is ra- who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you, with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed every day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.